because if you're going to lose your neck in this age that we live in, in the church age, you're going to lose it in Matthew or Acts or the book of Hebrews. And to understand those books, you've got to understand the Old Testament. But if you'll ever understand the Old Testament, you've got to understand the book of Revelation. And if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to understand Revelation chapter 11. So, as far as the book of Revelation is concerned, this is a key chapter in in light of how God uses the book of Revelation. This is, without a doubt, at least in my mind, the most important chapter of the Bible as far as New Testament believers are concerned. But in the first 14 verses, what we've been talking about is the the coming of the messengers. And the messengers being, of course, the, the infamous two witnesses of the book of Revelation that everybody goes to seed on. But we, we saw the, the completion of the mystery back in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, down to the end of the chapter, we're going to see the crowning of the Messiah. But before we get there, he wants us to see the coming of the messengers. Now, now we've spent, uh, as I said, quite a bit of time in chapter 11 already, and And we've covered an enormous amount of ground biblically, but we really haven't moved too far into our outline to this this point. In fact, we've really just gotten started. And the first point that we've begun talking about is the warrant assigned the witnesses. The warrant assigned the witnesses. You'll notice in verse 3 that the angel that began speaking to John back in verse 1 is continuing his conversation with him here in verse 3. And if you haven't been here for our study, this is the same angel that was talking to John back in chapter 10. It is the angel of the Lord. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And notice what our Lord says here in in verse 3. He says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses. In other words, he, he warrants them. He gives them his authority and his power, and the reason he does is because he has a very special assignment for him, for them. They are to be his witnesses, witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, one of the things that you begin to to find that is just consistent throughout the Bible and really throughout history is that God never, God never leaves himself without a witness. And the more degenerate the times, the more definite the testimony. You can go back and you can find that in the the wicked and corrupt and evil days just before the flood, God raised up two men. He raised up Enoch and Noah. In, In the darkest days of Israel's apostasy, God raised up Elijah and Elisha. And in the days that Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, the days that would be the absolute worst in the entire history of mankind, those days during what Jesus called the great tribulation, what we find is that God's going to do the same thing again. Jesus says in verse 3 that he will have his witnesses. And notice that once again, he will have two of them. He'll have two of them. Now, understand this, and we've spent an enormous amount of time trying to make sure that we understand this. Revelation chapter 11 has to do with Jews. And and according to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, Jewish law demanded that in order for a matter to be established or to be confirmed, it had to be at the mouth of at least, what, two witnesses. And you see, and that's why in John chapter 20 and verse 12, there were two angels in the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ the morning of his resurrection. That's why in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, when our Lord was sending out the 70 to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, how did he send them out? Two by two. That's why when our Lord was ascending back to the Father in Acts chapter 1 and verse 10, Two men in white apparel appeared to the disciples. You see, the thing is just consistent, and that's why at this point in the tribulation period, which is also referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, or the time of Israel's trouble, in order to establish that thing, what God does is he sends, count them, two witnesses. 
And, and let me remind you of letter A, the, the special place involved. The special place involved. The, these two witnesses carry out this ministry that they have been assigned. They carry that ministry out from a very special place. Now again, we won't take the time to go into it all again, but I, but I showed you how this, this place where the two witnesses center their activities is without a doubt the most significant piece of real estate on this entire planet. And it is so because the God of the Bible made that particular place stand at the center of history. It's where all of history began and it's where all of history will end. It's the place that is at the very heart of God's own purposes for this planet and for all of the people of this planet. And that place, of course, is none other than the city of, say it, Jerusalem. That place that verse 2 of Revelation chapter 11 calls the holy city. That place that verse 8 of Revelation 11 calls the great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt because it is also the place where our Lord was crucified. So that's the special place involved. And notice next the specific period involved. The specific period involved. Now, what we've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks is that when you cross-reference the first two verses of Revelation chapter 11, which we've gone into great detail on thus thus far we're not going to be even really hitting those at all but when you cross-reference chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 with Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 what you find is that at the beginning of the tribulation period the nation of Israel is going to sign a peace treaty with the world dictator that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. He's the same one who's referred to in, in this passage here in Revelation chapter 11, down in verse 7, as the beast. And so he's going to sign this, this peace treaty with the nation of Israel at the beginning of that tribulation period. And, and that treaty or, or covenant will guarantee Israel's protection, we, we've talked about the fact that that treaty is going to allow them to rebuild the temple, the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, in spite of the fact that this morning the, the Muslim shrine, the Dome of the Rock, is sitting on the Temple Mount today. And, but the Antichrist is going to come on at the beginning of the tribulation period. One of the things he's going to pull off is allowing them to rebuild this temple. The secularized Jews are going to think that he's wonderful because... He's allowed them to fulfill their political aspirations as a nation. The Orthodox Jews are going to think that he's wonderful because he's allowed them to build this temple and to revive the, the Mosaic ritual law. And, and buddy, at this point in the, the tribulation period, the nation of Israel is just going to think that they have finally arrived as a nation and as a people. But at the midpoint of the tribulation period, and this is Daniel 9, 27, the Antichrist is going to march himself into the Jewish temple and he is going to demand that he be worshipped as God and he is going to break the covenant with Israel. And for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, the Jews and Jerusalem will be trodden under the feet of the Gentiles. At the end of verse 2, look at it right here in Revelation 11. It says, And the holy city shall they, the Gentiles, tread underfoot forty and two months. Now listen, that's the specific period that the two witnesses will carry out their ministry in Jerusalem. We're talking about a period that encompasses the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, which is the last forty-two months of the tribulation period. And if you want this specific period spelled out in days, look at verse 3. It says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days, or one thousand two hundred and sixty days. And what that is, is forty-two months of thirty 
days each, which is how many days a biblical month has. So what it is is 42 times 30, which equals 1,260. Now, now listen, that's the specific period that the two witnesses will prophesy on this planet. And it will be approximately from the day that the Antichrist comes into the temple and exalts himself as God, what Daniel and Jesus and Paul all called the abomination of desolation. And it will be approximately from that day until the second coming of Christ. That's the specific period in which these two witnesses will carry out their ministry, the specific period involved. We've already seen this special place involved. And now let's look at the supernatural power involved. And this is what's going to begin to lead us into their, their identity. And of course, that's why we're all here today, right? We really don't care about the period. We really don't care about the place. We just want to know who these fellows are. And, you see, and it's almost as if verse 4 anticipates that after verse 3, okay, Jesus comes along verse 3 and says, and I'll give power unto my two witnesses. And it's almost as if he anticipates that we're going to ask the question, well, who are these two witnesses? And the answer comes in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. You understand that, right? See, that's who they are. And if any man will hurt them, okay, now here's the supernatural power involved. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. I mean, you get the idea God's not going to let anybody jive with these boys. I mean, he, he's... These, there's going to be some rough characters. And if you've got a problem with that, let me just explain something to you. For a period of, of 2,000 years on this, this planet, it has been the age of grace. And God from heaven has watched as believers in Jesus Christ have stood to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that every single one of us that know the Lord we're witnesses. Every one of us that know the Lord are witnesses, whether you like it or not. That's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that after the Holy Ghost has come upon us, you shall be witnesses. And for the last 2,000 years, God has watched as his witnesses were mercilessly thrown to wild animals and consumed he has watched as they've been dipped in tar and, and lit as torches. He's watched them be put on the rack and stretched so that every muscle and every joint and every tendon and, and every part of their entire being was just absolutely torn to shreds. He's watched his witnesses be impaled on stakes and be burnt to a crisp. He's watched them be thrown on grills and cook like you'd cook a piece of chicken in your backyard. He watched as red-hot pokers would be put into his witnesses' eyes and into their mouths and into their ears. And to be quite honest with you, if you'll read the accounts into parts of their anatomy that we cannot even discuss this morning. He's watched as their mouths have been filled with, with gunpowder and they have been exploded like a, a cherry bomb on the 4th of July. And we could go on and on and on as God has watched his witnesses be just annihilated like that. But buddy, during the tribulation period, God gives these two witnesses the supernatural ability to when somebody jives with them, all they do is just exhale. And my wife has told me that my breath could do that at some times but these guys somebody somebody's over here and, and, and messes with them while they're out preaching and they just bam and I mean just a little pile of ashes and as you look at the, the description that, that God gives here in verses 4 and 5 
Really, you don't even need to get past verses 4 and 5 to understand who the two witnesses are. Now, you need to understand that the, the importance of understanding the, the two witnesses is not so that we can be Bible bangers and we can have all our little proof texts for, for who the two witnesses are and we can impress everybody that you know, we can just work your, our way through the Word of God and tell everybody who these two witnesses are and we can strut our stuff. That's not the point. The reason we're going to go through this right now is the identity of these two witnesses has become a place where every cult in the world runs to try to give credence to their false system of religion. The Mormons are going to tell you that one of the witnesses is the Bible and the other is Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. So you see... These are the two witnesses, so you better listen to both of them. Get it? And in the Christian science, they come along and they tell you, yeah, one witness is the Bible and the other is the science and health key to the Scriptures, but you better have both witnesses. The Catholics will tell you that one witness is the Bible and the other is the Apocrypha. At one time, the Worldwide Church of God taught that one of the witnesses was Herbert W. Armstrong, and the other witnesses, uh, witness was his son, Garner Ted. Go figure. Some of y'all probably think it's Mark and Frank, so... Because some of y'all expect us to be here in the tribulation period, don't you? And, 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 I mean, we could go on. The Seventh-day Adventists got their deal, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have their deal. But verse 4 says that these two witnesses, here's who they are. They're the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, if all we had was this, we, we'd be in a lurch. But you see, God hasn't left us in a lurch because this isn't all that we have. The Bible says that the way we have this, the, the Word of God revealed to us is by comparing things spiritual with things spiritual. In other words, if you want to know what something means, then find other places in the Bible that talk about that same thing, and it'll be revealed to you. Okay, so let's compare Scripture with Scripture. And let's go back to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, right, right there at the end. In fact, you'll do good just to go to... Matthew, and start working your way back to the left. The last book of the Old Testament, of course, is Malachi, and then there's Zechariah, right before that. Zechariah chapter 4. Now, in Zechariah 4, Zechariah is receiving a vision, and in the vision he sees the same things that Revelation 11.4 talks about. It's the, the same candlestick and olive tree thing. And he doesn't know what they are either. So he asked the Lord what it was that he was actually seeing. And check it out in, in verse 11. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves and he answered me and said you don't know what that is knowest thou not what these be and I said no my lord he's just like us right then said he these are the two anointed ones that stand by the lord of the whole earth and we find out already that the two witnesses aren't books at all they're two anointed ones two anointed ones who way back in Zechariah's day were standing by the Lord of the whole earth who were candlesticks and olive trees and of course the the, the symbolism involved in the candlesticks and the olive tree is olive trees exude oil right and oil in the Bible is a symbol for what? The Holy Spirit. The candlesticks, of course, are, are, are light bearers. They're sources of light which are fueled 
by the oil that comes from the olive trees. And if you put it all together, what we're seeing here in Zechariah 4, along with what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 11, what we find is that during the last half of the tribulation period, God is going to have two chosen witnesses who will be anointed and fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming the message of light and will be a source of light in this sin-blackened world. Now, again, we're just collecting pieces right now. So we know that these two witnesses are people, and people who were already standing in the presence of the Lord in Zechariah's day, and two people who will be anointed in the tribulation period by the Holy Spirit, and two people who will possess incredible spiritual power, and turn back to, to Revelation chapter 11 to, to see it again, this, this supernatural power, because again, this is going to move us further into identifying who these men are. Verse 5, And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth, their enemies. And again, you can attack the Book of Mormon, you can attack the key to the scriptures, you can attack the Apocrypha and whatever else, and no fire is going to come barreling out to consume you, right? But you mess with these two guys and you'll end up a crispy critter. But but who who are these two witnesses? Well, verse 5 gives us a clue by showing us just what the supernatural power is that they possess, that fire that consumes their enemies. Now, now think with me, folks. What, what two men in the Bible can you think of who during their ministry, God unleashed fire to consume those that opposed them? Well, let's go back to the book of 2 Kings for just a minute, and we'll see the first one. One man that this was true of is a man by the name of What's his name? Elijah. Elijah. I want you to check this out with me here in the book of 2 Kings chapter 1. Now, Elijah is just a stud muffin prophet, y'all. I mean, the, the dude is just, you got to love him. And Elijah has been doing the job of, really, of any preacher. You know what he's doing? He's standing his ground, and he's simply telling people the way that it is. He's not speaking his own thing. He's just saying, hey, this is what God said. God said judgment's coming, okay? And because of that, he wasn't a real popular guy, okay? So he's already confronted some of the people in this manner. And the people go back and they tell King Ahaziah what he said. And check out verse 7. King Ahaziah said unto them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? In other words, what's this dude look like? And they answered him, ah, he was, a, he was an hairy man and, and girt with a girl of leather about his loins. And check out the response of the king. I knew it. It's that sorry, no good Elijah the Tishbite. That's who that is. And so in verse 9, I love this. The king sends 50 men to arrest him. And, and look at verse 9. Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of an hill. And he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and I fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, also, he sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. Okay, the boys don't come back, you know? And so the king is sitting around going, I don't know what happened to those. Hey, captain, take your fifty and get out there and let's do this thing again. He sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto him, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and I fifty. And the 
fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So they don't come back. And he sent again a captain of the third 50 with his 50. Okay, now you can just see, you know, here comes this third captain with his 50, and he sees these 100 piles of ashes there where these guys were as they're talking to him. And so this guy get, gets wise, and, and he says, and, and the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and, and said, Oh, man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these 50 my servants be precious in thy sight. I mean, he's scared out of his wits, man. Behold, there came fire down and burn up the two captains of the former 50s with the 50. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. Okay, so obviously, Elijah is somebody that has this, this power to be able to unleash fire to consume his enemies. Now, can you think of anybody else in the Bible that had that same kind of power? How about Moses? Turn back with me, if you would, to the, the book of Numbers, chapter 16. Numbers 16. And you'll notice in, in verse 1 that the congregation of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, verse 2, that they've risen up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. You know what they've done? They've got a, a little group of whiners and complainers in the church, if you will. And they've got everybody, you know, with their tail all in a crack and they're causing all kinds of problems and they've got all the big wigs. They've got all the big money people, you know, all that deal. That's exactly what verse 2 is talking about. And what this whole chapter is, is just this, this whole conflict that's going on here. And check out verse, verse 31. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words... This is Moses. When he, when he gets finished speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled to the cry of them, for they said, Let, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 bigwigs that offered incense. So both Elijah and Moses destroyed their enemies by fire, just like a Revelation chapter 11 and verse 5 says that the two witnesses are going to do during the tribulation period. So if you're wondering who I believe the two witnesses are, I believe it'll be those two men, Elijah and Moses. And I'll show you further reasons in just a second. But those two men exhibited the power to consume their enemies with, with fire when they ministered on this earth the first time. And I believe that that was just a, a foreshadowing of the power that they're going to exhibit when they come back to the earth to complete their ministry during the Great Tribulation. Now, I'll give you that if we're going to base this thing of who these two witnesses are on what I've just shown you, then, you know, it really isn't conclusive enough at this point. If that's the only evidence we have, we're probably, you know, just standing a little bit on shaky ground. But that isn't the only evidence. Now, follow this with me. Prior to the first coming of Christ, God had given the nation of Israel two witnesses. He had given them two witnesses. Those two witnesses were the law and the prophets. Jesus referred to those witnesses at least five different times in his earthly ministry. The law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. And what you find is that biblically, the ministry of these two men, Moses and Elijah, 
Their ministry was representative of those two things. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. Moses gave the law. Elijah guarded the law. Moses provided the law. Elijah protected the law. And that's why in Matthew chapter 17, and why don't you just turn back there with me if you would, Matthew chapter 17, And, of course, Matthew chapter 17 is when, <coughs> is when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain and was transfigured before them. And most people, quite honestly, miss the significance of this event because they don't understand the context. And the reason that they miss the context is that they don't connect chapter 17 with chapter 16. And I'll tell you, it's, it's really hard to, to do that if you're a Bible student at all, because what's the first word of chapter 17? And, okay, and, and it's a connecting word. I mean, you, you come, I mean, if you're going to just pick up reading and it says, and after, okay, you've got to go back and find out what, what, what this is after and what, what this and thing is all about. And the event in chapter 17... And if you're newer to the Bible, what the transfiguration was is when the figure of Christ's body was transformed before Peter, James, and John. That's why it's called the transfiguration. It was the transformation of the figure of Christ's body. They, they looked at his earthly body, and right before their very eyes, something very significant happened. But... All of this that's going on here in chapter 17 is connected with what you see back in verse 27 of chapter 16. Look at what it says. Jesus is speaking and he says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Okay, now he's already come in his first coming at this point. He's 33 at least years old at, at this point. 32 perhaps. He's talking about his second coming here when he comes with the glory of his father with his angels and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we've talked about this an awful lot, but just so that we all understand the context. Folks, listen. Either there's some very old folks that are walking around on this planet who right now are almost 2,000 years old, or Jesus meant something different than that the, these fact, the, the fact that these guys would be alive until the actual second coming of Christ. And you see, that's why chapter 17 begins with the word and, so that you wouldn't stop right there, so you'd go on and understand that these next verses are connected with what you just see right there. He says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And what you find all the way through the Bible is that when God shows up, he always shows up as blazing, blinding light. He did in the tabernacle, he did in the temple, he did in the garden. Everywhere you see it, he shows up as blazing, blinding light. When Jesus came to this planet, he was that light. But that light was veiled in a human body. And what is taking place here in Matthew chapter 17 is he is revealing to Peter, James, and John who he really is. That he is the Shekinah, glory, of God that has been veiled in a human body but when he comes at his second coming this is the glory that he'll come with he will come with his his face as white as the Sun and his raiment will be as white as the light I mean he this what what these guys are seeing here is a preview of the second coming of Christ that's what the context is here this the second coming of Christ. And in that context, guess who shows up? Look at verse 3. Moses and Elijah. You know what they were? They were the 
two witnesses. Actually, they were right there in front of Peter, James, and John. They were the visual representation of the Old Testament. You see, folks, listen. The whole purpose of the Old Testament was to present Jesus Christ. And what we have in Matthew chapter 17 is here is the Old Testament. The law and the prophets represented in Moses and Elijah attesting to the fact that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And during the Great Tribulation, guess who's going to show up again to be witnesses of the power and coming of the Lord? I mean, the book just fits together, folks. It's going to be the same two guys who obviously have been working together for years now. Just getting ready for the main event that's going to be taking place on this planet in just a couple of years. Moses and Elijah, they gave witness at the transfiguration. They'll give witness in the tribulation. They gave witness in the preview of the second coming. They will give witness when the real deal, when the second coming actually comes to this planet. And coincidentally enough, just take a stab at who the last two human beings are that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Just in Malachi chapter 4, we're not too far from it. Malachi chapter 4, which is obviously the last chapter of the Bible. And the, you know what the context of Malachi chapter 4 is? Verses 1 and 2 said it for you. You know what it is? It's the second coming of Christ. That's what the context is here. Again, the second coming of Christ. And in that context, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6, the last two human beings to be mentioned are, you see them there? Moses and Elijah. And you'll notice that it mentions both of them in connection with, with Horeb. Do you see that in the middle of verse 4? Horeb is another name the Old Testament uses for Mount Sinai. And coincidentally enough, did you know that Jesus was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights? You know who else went up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights? A guy by the name of Moses. You know who else went up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights? A guy by the name of Elijah. In fact, the last two verses of the Old Testament even tell you specifically that Elijah is going to be one of the witnesses. I mean, this is hard to miss. Look at verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. But something else that's interesting about Elijah is the fact that according to Second Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Kings, chapter two, verses nine through twelve. Did you know this about Elijah? Elijah did not die. The Bible is very clear that he ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire in a whirlwind. And you'll remember that when Elisha comes along and took Elijah's place, Elisha challenged the people to find Elijah's grave, and they couldn't do it. And the reason they couldn't do it is because of the very simple fact Elijah did not die. He wasn't buried. He ascended bodily to heaven now folks that's significant because that's why Peter James and John could look on the Mount of Transfiguration before Jesus had even died and risen from the dead before he had led captivity captive and they're able to look and able to see Elijah there he was there because he had already been taken to heaven Someone says, well, boy, that, yeah, that, that fits for Elijah, but you know, what, about, what about Moses? Because he did die, and yeah, he did. In fact, let's look at his death in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now, there have been a lot of folks who've died through the years, but there's only one guy who had 
God himself preside over his funeral. And that in itself, I mean, here, here is God's only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he dies, and God doesn't preside over his funeral. So when you see one guy, and God presides over his funeral, all of a sudden you're going to start just looking around and seeing what's up with that. Deuteronomy 34, and check out verse 5. <clears throat> So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he, that's the Lord, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. Now that shouldn't be too hard to find, right? But no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. And You know why no one was able to find Moses' body? It's because Moses did not stay buried. You see, the, the devil knew that there was something special about this guy, Moses. He knew that God had a very special plan, and he knew that he needed to do something with the body of Moses. And that's why, if you've got the time, well, in fact, yeah, it's right next to the Revelation, so why don't we go back there. Check out in the book of Jude. The book of Jude, verse 9, says... That Michael, the archangel, contended with the devil. And you know what the dispute was about, folks? Check it out. What does it say? The body of Moses. You know why? Because the devil knew that in the last days before the return of Jesus Christ to this earth, Moses would come back to the earth and testify once again to the nation of Israel. And he wanted to make sure he was doing everything that he could possibly do to make sure that that didn't happen. So God buried him, but he didn't stay dead. Now, I'll probably need to bring up the fact that there are a lot of good people who, who believe the Bible and, and all of that, and, but they believe that because... Moses died that he can't actually be the other witness. Now, they'll, they'll give you that, you know, I mean, Elijah, as we just saw in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, Elijah is clearly spelled out. But they, they say that because Moses died, he can't be this witness. And the, the key verse that they want to use is Hebrews 9, 27. And as it is appointed unto man, what? Once, once to die. And they say that it would be a violation of Hebrews 9.27 for the witness to be Moses because if Moses comes back during the tribulation period, that would mean that he's actually going to die not once but, but twice. Okay, but how many times did Lazarus die? How many times did Jairus's daughter die? How many times did the widow's son die? They, they all died were resurrected and kicked the bucket again, right? Okay, and, and so the line of reasoning goes that if it was appointed unto man once to die, then it must be Elijah because he is going to have to come back and fulfill Hebrews 9.27 because we saw just a minute ago, he didn't die. So you see, the Bible is going to all work out because Elijah is going to come back during the tribulation period. He is once going to die, okay? And then they go... There's only one other person in all of the Bible and in all of history who didn't die but was taken to heaven. And so, since Elijah didn't die, and he's one of the witnesses, so this other guy must be the witness, and who is that? Enoch, okay? And in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, you don't need to turn there. What it says is that Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Hebrews 11 and verse 5 says that Enoch was translated, raptured, if you will, that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. And so, boy, might, might have something going here, you know, with this whole deal of, you know, Enoch's going to come back and, and he's going to have to die just like Elijah and all of that. And it all sounds well and good, but you've got to keep in mind something, folks. Enoch is a picture of millions of people who are on this planet right now who will also be translated in the moment in the twinkling of an eye will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord and so shall we ever be with the Lord and we'll all do so, all of us that know the Lord as our Savior, 
we'll all do so without what? Without dying, right? So hey, this is, this is no problem. And Hebrews 9.27 is not a statement about every individual man. It's talking about man as a race. It's appointed that man is going to die and history would fulfill that prophecy, right? So you see, don't, don't let Enoch throw you. Enoch was a guy who lived in the darkest hours just before the judgment of God fell uh, by way of the flood and God raptured him out just before the tribulation of those days. And again, all he is is a perfect picture of the church who will also be raptured off of the face of this planet just before the judgment of God falls on this earth in the tribulation period. And I don't know if you've ever even thought about this, but but what's interesting is you step back and you just begin to look at the, the ministry that, that Moses and Elijah had. I mean, as powerful as these guys were and as greatly used of God as they were and as illustrious a ministry as these guys had, what you find is that neither one of these guys actually finished their ministry. It's, it's almost as if they, they, they came to the end of the, their ministry and they, they still had something more left in them. You, you remember that Moses, he, he had led the nation of Israel for 40 years through the wilderness. And they finally come to the border of the promised land. This is the moment that he had been waiting for to lead God's people into this land. And Moses was able to go up and he was able to look at it. And he looked at it. And he looked at it. And he looked at it, but he wasn't permitted to take him in. You'll remember that God took him first, and he never stepped foot in the promised land. you remember that with Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is up on, on Mount Carmel with a major showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal below, along with the 400 prophets of the, of the groves. I mean, here is Elijah... The stud muffin we were just talking about a few minutes ago, he is outnumbered 850 to 1. And against those kinds of odds, God gave him the victory. But then you remember on the very next day, Elijah, the stud muffin prophet, gets the word that there's one loudmouth stinking broad out there that's ticked off. And, and now, ladies, I didn't say that about you. I said it about Jezebel, okay? And would you give me that she's a loudmouth broad? I don't care if you're a female or a male. Y'all need to get out more, evidently. <laughs> but here's this lady, and man, I mean, she's all ticked off. And, and here's, here's Elijah. And he gets all nervous and depressed. The stud muff. And he tells God, I just want my life to be over. And God says, okay. Just watch when you, when you tell God some stuff about, you know, I'm just going to quit. You, you know what? God may say that's fine. No problem. Elijah gets all, you know. And God says, all right. And God has him anoint Elisha. And he was done. Buddy, during the tribulation period, God's going to bring these two guys back. And guess what? They're going to get to finish their testimony. Revelation chapter 11, look at verse, look at verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony. Check it out, man. The same Moses who wasn't permitted to step foot in the promised land is going to stand and preach right in the middle of Jerusalem. Right in the middle of the promised land. The, the same Elijah who ran from the heathen queen is going to stand toe-to-toe and eyeball-to-eyeball, and he's going to wave his bony little finger right in the face of the Antichrist, which is really just a, another case and point here. You remember that in their first ministries, both Moses and Elijah preached to and were opposed by a type of Antichrist. Moses, of course, was opposed by Pharaoh, and Elijah was opposed by Ahab. And when they come back to finish their testimony, and this time it's going to be against 
the opposition of the Antichrist himself. Just like it was pictured, it'll be with the Antichrist himself, the one that verse 7 calls the beast. And again, I mean, folks, you just see that God has a way of just tying things together. But that's not the only reasons to believe that the two witnesses are, are Moses and Elijah. Revelation 11, if you're not already there. Revelation chapter 11, verse 6. I mean, if there's been any doubt in your mind, verse 6 just nails it. As our Lord shows us the weapons allotted the witnesses. The weapons allotted the witnesses. We saw the warrant assigned to the witnesses. We saw what their job was and the place and the period and the power that they were going to carry out that ministry. Now the weapons allotted the witnesses. Now first of all, between these two witnesses, they possess the weapon of drought. Verse 6 says, These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Now, how long was the days of their prophecy? And if you can't tell me this, I'm going to commit suicide right here. Okay, this is why we went through that whole specific period thing. We saw back in verses 2 and 3. The days of their prophecy were 1,260 days or 42 months, which is a period of how many years, class? Three and a half. Now, now does that sound familiar to you at all? Somebody that possessed the power to not make it rain on the earth for three and a half years? Who was that? Elijah. Turn back just a, a few pages to the left, to the book of James. And of course, the book of James is a book whose prophetic application has to do with the Jew in the tribulation period. And look at what it says in, in chapter 5 of James and verse 17. The first word, Elias, and of course Elias is simply the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Elijah. That's the way that you say it in the Greek, and it's just transliterated here for us. Elias, Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And of course, that was during the days of Ahab in 1 Kings 17. And again, Ahab being a type of Antichrist, being a picture of what's going to take place in the tribulation period. And check this out. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And during the Great Tribulation, you know what's going to happen? History is going to repeat itself again. As Elijah pulls out the weapon of drought on this earth for a period of three and a half years. And then notice the next weapon allotted to them. They possess the weapon of death. The weapon of death. The middle of verse 6 says, And have power over waters to turn them to blood. Waters that turn to blood. And who was it that exercised that power? Moses. In, in Exodus chapter 7, God sent Moses to get in Pharaoh's face. And, and Pharaoh, being a type of antichrist, he, he goes down and he told, told Pharaoh what was up. And in the midst of all of that, he turned the water throughout the land of Egypt, a picture of the world. He pictured it, or he turned it into literal blood. So check it out. Elijah does his things, his thing, and the heavens are shut up, and it doesn't rain during the tribulation period, during the great tribulation. It doesn't rain for three and a half years, and the ground, as you can imagine, just becomes like cement, and the earth is just one major dust bowl, and with whatever water is left, Moses comes along, and he turns it to blood. But that's not all. They, they also possess the weapon of disease. The end of verse 6 says, they also have power to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will, just as often as they want to. And of course, Moses did that too, right? Exodus chapter 9, verse 3. 
says that he called for murrain upon the cattle. Murrain is infectious disease upon the cattle. Exodus 9.9 says that he called for boils and blains upon men. Men would have infectious boils and, and blisters that would break out all over their body. Again, it was, a, it was leprosy, basically. And during the Great Tribulation, Moses will simply speak the word, just like he did back in Exodus chapter 9. And the world's going to be hit with all kinds of revitalized plagues, and not to mention all kinds of terrible new diseases. And he'll do it as often as he wants. Anybody that messes with him, bam, it just, he just lets it go. So, so now check it out. Revelation 11, if you're not there. Verse 5 says that here is going to be Moses and Elijah. They're going to be prophesying out on the street corner in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, some of the Antichrist boys are going to come up, and they're going to want to start some trouble, and, and they're going to start making fun of them, and they're going to be laughing. They'll pick up something to throw at them, maybe pull out a gun to shoot them. And, and here comes Moses and Elijah. They just turn to where they are. They just exhale, and fire comes blowing out of their mouths, and just instant cremation right there. Elijah speaks the word. The rain stops for a period of three and a half years. Moses speaks the word, and all of the water on the entire planet turns to blood. The fish die, and the world stinks, and all of the people are, are, are dying of, of thirst. And, and, and then those who aren't dying of thirst, they contract some kind of incredible disease that Moses had called down upon them. And these men are going to exercise that power. They'll possess that power until they have done every single thing that these men were called by God to do. And they'll exercise that power until they've said every single thing that God wants them to say. And when they've said all that God wants them to say, and they've done all that God wants them to do, verse 7 says, And when they shall have finished their testimony... They finished. The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And if you want to know just how bad Moses and Elijah will be hated during this time, verse 8 says, And their dead bodies, after the beast kills them, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer or allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Yeah, they'll finally be killed. But check it out. Not until they have finished their testimony. You know what? We could say it this way. These guys will be immortal until their work is done. Superman. But you know what's neat about that? If you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are walking in obedience to the revealed will of God in our lives, seeking to be used by God for His purpose, if we're seeking to be His witnesses on this planet, do you understand something this morning? The same exact thing is true of us. Have you ever thought about this? You are absolutely immortal until your work is done. I promise you, if you're using your life to carry out the mission of Christ on this planet, you're wanting your life to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, I promise you, nothing, nothing, nothing is ever going to happen to you that is going to happen without the Lord's per permission. I promise you, your life will not end until you have finished your testimony, until you've said everything that God wants you to say, and until you've done everything that God wants you to do. And let me ask you this. How much longer after you've said everything that God wants you to say and done everything God wants you to do, how much longer do you want to be sticking around on this planet anyway? Right? And I promise you, 
we have the same exact kind of protection as these guys had. If we love God, we're called according to His purpose. His purpose is to win this world for Jesus Christ. It's for us to stand up and be witnesses. And they may bash your brains out as a witness. But it won't be until you've said everything you're supposed to say. And then if you get to go that way, we're going to have one whale of a service in your honor. And you know what I'll bet? I'll bet you the people you've been praying for for years and years when they come to your funeral, I'll bet you get an opportunity to witness to them like you never imagined. I bet you'll see them come to Christ. Those that suffered for his name in the word of God, you know what they found? Wow. Who are we that we've been counted worthy to suffer like this? Now, Lord, I do pray that you'd help us.